0: Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. If you read and believed the mainstream media in 2019, and I'm sorry to say that even many conservatives believe what they read in the mainstream media, you knew for certain that Congressman Steve King was a racist and an anti-Semite. The New York Times, after all, said so. For that matter, so did the Republican Jewish Coalition and the Republican leadership which expelled King from every congressional committee on which he had been sitting. Even Ben Shapiro jumped on the bandwagon. He believed the D.C. medical establishment when it said the COVID vaccine works, and he believed the New York Times when it said King had made racist comments. He said King needed to go. Well, a year and a half later, in June 2020, Shapiro got his wish. King lost his primary race to a candidate selected by the Republican establishment to run against him. Steve King joins us now to discuss this saga, as well as his new book, Walking Through the Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. Congressman King, welcome to the program.
0: Well, thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it, Elliot. And that introduction tells me this is going to be an interesting conversation.
1: (laughs) Thank you kindly. It honestly pains me to ask you this question, and it pains me that you wrote a whole book defending yourself from leftist smears. We shouldn't have to defend ourselves against vicious leftist lies. In my opinion, if leftists accuse us of being racist, we should either laugh in their face or accuse them of vivisecting babies in their bathtub every night. The one accusation is just as outrageous as the other. That said, people are curious, and some, unfortunately, still do believe what they read in the mainstream press. So, why were you accused of being an anti-Semite, and are you, in fact, one?
0: Well, that, that is a good question that's baffled me for some time, in that I go back to James Minster's book, I believe it was called The Source. I read that about the time it was published in the 70s. Uh, my life has been a mirror of the state of Israel. So I've paid attention to what's going on there. I've met with Bibi a couple of times in his private office and been through uh, across throughout Israel, impressed. And I grew up in an environment where we really didn't draw a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It didn't come up in my family. I didn't really learn to identify names as a way to indicate that. So why did they call me that? Um, I'd go back to um, a dinner that I had in August twenty fourth, two 2018. It was in Vienna. And at that table were about five heavy-hitting businessmen. I had not met any of them before. I was invited to sit down and talk about U.S. economics and politics. And when I sat down there, the individual on my right said, Congressman, I think you should know that you're seated here with two homosexuals and a Jew. And uh, the fellow across the table immediately said, well, who's the Jew? And uh, we all laughed because he apparently knew who the other homosexual was. And that was all that was brought up by it. But I was accused at that meeting of plotting against Jewish people of anti-Semitism and a meeting with a Jew, sitting on my right, who defended George Soros when I criticized George Soros. But immediately after that, the criticism of George Soros apparently was anti-Semitism. I didn't know he was a Jew until they attacked me. Then it went on from there. Within three days, a reporter showed up in my congressional district to write a story about Devin Nunes and I and attacked us for protecting allegedly illegal immigrants milking Devin's brother's cows in northwest Iowa. That was planted, I believe, that reporter. A nasty story came out in Esquire magazine about a month later. Then the Republican-Jewish coalition piled on. After the election, I went back and looked. The founder of the PAC who attacked Nunes and me A half a million dollars, about 400000 of that spent against me, his name is Seth Klarman. Now, that didn't mean anything to me, but I understand that he is um, alleged to be a vulture capitalist, perhaps associated with Paul Singer. The advocacy for same-sex marriage comes out of Paul Singer with millions of dollars advocating for that, and they have to be influential in the RJC. So these are some of the things that I think brought about. It's kind of like when you're a carpenter and the only tool you have is a hammer, Then uh, everything looks like a nail. Well, if that tool you most often use is anti-Semitism allegations, that's what they used against me, Elliot. That's how I think that came together.
1: And that meeting in Vienna, if I understand correctly, that was with a party that somehow is associated with the right, even though Austria is apparently extremely pro-Israel now. But that's the basic idea, though, that you were meeting with people who are on the Austrian right or something like that?
0: Well, there was one individual at that table who was, I believe, chief of staff for one of the top party officials of the, we call them the Freedom Party in Austria. And I do have associations with them. And yes, one of their original founders was a Nazi, but anybody that survived the Second World War and emerged into politics in Austria in the late 40s was going to be a Nazi or dead. And so uh, they have rejected that. They've worked to improve their relationships with the Jewish community. I don't know there's been anything come out of them that you could describe as anti-Semitic, but they do believe in patriotism. They believe in liberty. They believe in the foundations that have made America great. And I want to strengthen that. We need more conservatism. The other people are attacking Western civilization. And I was there to advocate for the idea that we should establish an international organization to restore Western civilization for the world. So they manufactured that out of that meeting.
1: I don't know who the Austrian prime minister is now, but I know certainly I think at the time when you had that meeting, he's a young person. He's extremely pro-Israel, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You lost your congressional seat essentially because the New York Times claimed that you had praised white supremacy and white nationalism. You gave Kevin McCarthy your word of honor that you had done no such thing, but he Mm -hmm. didn't believe you and essentially helped ensure that you wouldn't get reelected in 2020. It seems like Kevin McCarthy will now be the Speaker of the House. And my question is, does a person who believes a New York Times reporter over one of his colleagues deserve to be the Speaker of the House?
0: Absolutely not. And I spent 18 years in the United States Congress, seven years in the Iowa Senate. There's never been any kind of an allegation that had any credibility whatsoever against my integrity or my honesty. In fact, my criticism comes, you're too honest, Steve. You shouldn't tell us this whole truth because sometimes it's not good for some of those other folks that don't want to. Um, Whether Kevin McCarthy believed me or not in that disagreement with the New York Times, and I'll go on the record, that was at best a misquote. Whether it was willful or not, I can't know that. But Kevin McCarthy had no intention of believing me when he walked in that room. We had a one-hour Lockhorns type of a meeting in that room, and uh, I wish I had all of that on tape. I have a lot of it in my memory, but he was like a prosecuting attorney. Whatever I would say to him, he would come back and slam it. Nothing penetrated into his any reasonable part of his mind because he had an agenda. And I believe he was in on this well before the New York Times story and the pattern of his actions prior to that and after. Tell me that. So they were determined. There was a decision made sometime in probably August of 2018. It was a concluded decision by October of 2018 that they were going to use their forces to get me pushed out of Congress. And a piece that's in my book, Walking Through the Fire, is about, and I'll just use the names here on your program, Elliot. Jeff Rowe was the campaign manager for Ted Cruz for president, and I was a national campaign co-chairman for Cruz for president. So I, I've worked with Jeff a lot, and he is wired in well politically. In a conference with him about two weeks before Thanksgiving in uh, 2018. After I'd won the election, relatively closer than it should have been, he said, they're going to try again. They believe that they had too many midterm election distractions to focus all of their press on me. That's why they didn't get me beaten in the general election in 2018. But they would pick a lull in the media cycle. They would send a messenger to President Trump to convince President Trump to put out a negative tweet on me which would then trigger the all-out assault from the media and also members of Congress. And so I believed that that was going to happen, and I did my best to preempt it at the White House. I think I succeeded there. Trump didn't weigh in against me. But then uh, I went to the messenger, and the the January 8th, uh, I spoke with the messenger and said, I know what the plot is, and I will blow this thing wide open in this country if you go forward with it. I was assured that that wouldn't happen. The next day, My primary opponent announced, it was January 9th, he had scrubbed all of his Twitter accounts that morning, and he had no rollout plan, no media plan, all he had was a tweet that said, I'm going to challenge Steve King. The media picked that up, of course. The next day, the New York Times story came out, and after that, there was no way to put the genie back in the bottle, but they believed they could force me to resign. That was the words that came out of Jeff Rowe, that was the words that came out of the people that were attacking me, resign, 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 and I said... You're going to have to shoot me down in the middle of Main Street at High Noon with everybody watching. I will never resign. And I guess that's exactly what they did, Elliot.
1: Essentially, metaphorically, they did wind up shooting you. And just for the listeners who don't know, essentially, the New York Times accused you. You, had, you were defending Western civilization, and they accused you, no, that you're actually defending white supremacy and white nationalism, which, as you point out in the book, no one had even heard of these terms before a few years ago when the left decided that racist was just a tired term, so they needed to come up with new terms. That's essentially what the article said that you had done. Um, I want to ask you, I guess, maybe a sort of a spiritual question. Um, yeah, you know, Eli,
0: before can I just circle back to that for a yeah. second yeah. before go we go to the
1: spiritual question, which I'm happy to answer?
0: Um, that I, I should also say so that the listeners hear how this came about. But in that article that was written by Trip Gabriel in the New York Times, it said that I had said white nationalism, white supremacy, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? That was a quote that was in the paper. It was a 56-minute interview. There was no tape of that. And about two days later when that came out, I was trying to rack my brain. How did this actually be written as words that came out of my mouth? But uh, what it was was I had recognized that George Soros and the activist Democrats, they had met in the Occidental Mandarin Hotel in Washington, D.C., starting the Sunday after Trump was elected, And out of that came the weaponization of these terms. And so I had already done an interview in the Christian Science Monitor that explained this. These are the weaponized terms. Racism was wearing out. So we're going to call people Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists. That's in there. And I also defended Western civilization in the Christian Science Monitor article, as I did in the interview with Trip Gabriel. And so when we went back through LexisNexis, we found out that I had never used the terms white nationalist or white supremacy in the 20 years prior to this, zero times. But I had defended Western civilization 276 times. So that ought to settle the question as to who's telling the truth on this.
1: Right. And again, just to clarify for the readers, you you, you were saying that the New York Times had, had mentioned those terms. So you repeated those terms back in answering the question... And then when you said, what's wrong with that language, you were referring to what's wrong with talking about Western civilization. Right. New York Times grouped all three together. Um, You write in the book that walking through the fire that your communications director emailed you that morning of your conversation with a New York Times reporter and he wrote to you, I think it's a trap. He's out to get you. You were in the shower, however, when the email arrived and hadn't yet seen it when the reporter, the New York Times reporter called you that morning. Do you think there was like an element of divine fate in you not seeing that email? You know, we we don't understand God's ways, but he had his reasons for whatever reason that you missed that email?
0: My wife might say so, because what she has said is that after 24 years of public service, she's glad that it's over. She's sorry it had to end the way that it did. Uh, So perhaps that was a key. But I want to defend my communications director, John Kennedy, and he was diligent as he could be. And uh, he's always questioned, what if he'd sent a text? When I have seen that instead of the email? The email came at 8.52, no, 7.52 a.m. And I had texted back to Trip Gabriel that I thought I would be open at 8.30 that day, but he should run it through my communications director to get the appointment. Well, when the call came at 8.30, I thought that it had been approved by John Kennedy or I wouldn't be getting the call. An ethical reporter wouldn't bypass that directive, but he did. And so that's how it happened. But I would say that they would have done this anyway. This was a manufactured trigger, and they would have done this or done something else to do that, do so. And, and I think you mentioned it, but Trip Gabriel said that he didn't think that quote would be what did it. So he knew that he was writing an article that was to set me up, and they were to use something in that article to attack me. He didn't think that was the phrase, and I'll tell you which one I thought it was going to be. He asked me at the end of the interview, when you look over there at the Democrats in the House of Representatives, what does what do you think? And I gave him a straight, honest answer. I said, well, I look over there and I think it's no country for white men. And uh, I thought that's what he would use to attack me. But instead, they chose the other one. I'm not trying to insult you. Well, what I mean is that they've got the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Congressional oh. Women's Caucus. I mean, everybody over there is a minority except uh, a few of the folks that are Caucasians, and uh, they're scrubbing them out. And by the way, there's no pro-life Democrat left in the House of Representatives. They've scrubbed all of them out too. So I have witnessed and lived the movement of the of the center of the Republicans in the, or excuse me, the Democrats in the in the U.S. House moving from, we had some centrists there, the blue dog Democrats that you could do business with, people I liked, and, and some of them are friends to this day. Most of them have been scrubbed, and that party has lurched hardcore to the left, and they're undermining our, our nation with their adherence to Marxism and socialism and you know, all of this uh, new woke stuff that um, I think a lot of your listeners don't agree with, and neither do I.
1: Right, right, right. Um, you were kicked out essentially because... Kevin McCarthy, but not just him, many Republicans don't have a backbone, basically. Teddy Roosevelt once said about someone, quote, he has the backbone of a chocolate eclair, end quote. Um, What can we do to strengthen the backbone of Republicans, the overwhelming majority of whom seem to suffer from an inferiority complex? Well,
0: one of those things is that you need principled conservatives. And um, what works against that is, on the Republican side, we have the establishment, the elitists. Um, a lot of never-Trumpers are in that wing, and they despise conservatives. And I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago, but I've seen how this thing works in a clearer way today. And so when you look at it, I've said this to them for years, though. I'd say to the conservatives, I'm a natural-born, full-spectrum, constitutional Christian conservative. That means I defend the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Constitution, the Declaration, and all of the things that emanate from that. And it comes naturally to me. So the conservatives get everything they want. And then I turn to the establishment people and I say, you get everything you want, too. You just get more than you want. So why are you unhappy? Well, they don't want to talk about the social agenda. They don't want to protect innocent, unborn human life. They don't want to defend natural marriage. And they really don't even want to balance the budget. They want to grow this government for their own profit. And someday we will fall unless we reverse that, Elliot.
1: And so... I guess, practically, is there anything you suggest that we could do to reverse this trend?
0: Yes. Um, Another thing that's happening is we have the establishment wing of the party is entering into primaries using party money to defeat conservatives in the primary so they can advance their, I'll call them the rhino candidate, because their rhino candidate is going to come in and the leadership can tell them what to do, what to say, and how to vote. So what they're building is a club of elitists that won't rock the boat with leadership. They'll all be tied in and dependent upon leadership. And when you've got conservatives in there, they think for themselves. And they'll advance an agenda that reflects the agenda of we the people. So um, Kevin McCarthy has spent millions to defeat conservatives in Republican primaries across this country. And the makeup of the United States House of Representatives is considerably less conservative because of that kind of action. So I'd call Kevin McCarthy out on that. We ought not have party money involved in primaries anywhere in this country. Let the people in the, in the congressional districts support their chosen candidates. Let them compete, and then let them, be, let, let them be nominated. Come what may in the general election, support them all, in my opinion.
1: In 2016, you got into hot water for defending Western civilization. An MSNBC panelist attacked white people. And you essentially pointed out that white people are largely responsible for Western civilization, which has given us democracy, equal justice under the law, the automobile, the light bulb, airplanes, the internet, etc. As you yourself have stated numerous times, we shouldn't be talking about race. We should be talking about culture and civilization. But no one does. Liberals obsess over race and refuse to defend Western civilization, even though they themselves would never, for example, move to an African country other than South Africa. Can we survive as a nation if we disdain our own heritage?
0: We have to sustain our own heritage, and I don't think we can survive if we don't do that. Um, And and we're going to be called all kinds of names for that. I like the way you characterize this, and I I describe Western civilization. Uh, It's rooted back in Moses and uh, his system of judges, the rule of law that went through Greece and Rome, and then the Roman Empire spread that across Western Europe. When the Dark Ages were over, still the rule of law emerged. So the Romans gave us the Republican form of government, the representative form of government. The Greeks gave us reason, the ability to put together the structure of science that that develops the reasonable thought process so that we can develop technologically. And uh, just things that I'm celebrating here a little bit, Elliot, if you bear with me, but I, I just so these pieces that that emerged from Moses, from the Greeks, from the Romans, spread across Western Europe, disappeared during the Dark Ages, emerged again six, seven years later. And it came about with a Magna Carta, individual rights, a man's home is his castle. And um, when you brought the pilgrims over here and landed in the New World, they said a prayer that they'd be evangelists for the world, not just the people in this land, but also the evangelists for the world. And 170 years later, we had the Declaration of Independence that lays these principles down. What's unique, I think, and people forget, is that Adam Smith published Wealth of Nations, the treatise on free enterprise capitalism, 1776. And so these principles arrived here in the new world and blossomed in a giant, beautiful petri dish of all of the elements of God-given liberty and freedom. The pillars of American exceptionalism were laid almost simultaneously with 1776, and have grown from them. That is a precious gift from God that we have. And now we're seeing it under assault, attacking Western civilization because they say, well, that's white civilization. There's nothing that excludes anybody with whatever melanin content from engaging in all of the benefits of Western civilization. But Western Civ is the first world. And if we let it go down, America is the flagship of the fleet of Western civilization And if they sink America, they sink all of the civilization. The whole fleet goes down. If that's the case, there is no first world left anymore. It's either second world or third world. And nobody that lives under the boot heel of either one of those systems ever wants to live in that again. They all, like you said, migration comes our way. It's a one-way migration. And why aren't we proud enough to defend that with everything we've got? I don't think I know the answer to that.
1: Right. Last question. Grassroots Republicans complain about election irregularities in places like Pennsylvania and Arizona, but even if they're right, the races in these states should not be this close. All over the country, you essentially have America-loving Republicans running against America-hating Democrats, and the Democrat candidate often wins or just barely loses. Many people believe Republicans will continue to lose or or just barely win as long as the left controls the culture. Which leads to my next and final question. Why is there only one Hillsdale College and one Liberty University in this country? Why aren't there 50 conservative colleges? And more importantly, what can we do so that one day there will be, in fact, 50 of them in this country molding the minds of the next generation?
0: Boy, that's a a big picture look at it, Elliot. And I take it even back to K through 12, more so today than 10 years or 20 years ago. Um, How do we change all that? Um, I was on the phone yesterday with former Congressman Pete Hoekstra, Ambassador to Holland, by the way, under Trump, and he had introduced legislation when we were in Congress together just to abolish No Child Left Behind. Um, but when No Child Left Behind put the federal hooks into K-12 through education, then they can spread that, plus with the teachers union, through the, all the curriculum in the United States. I don't know if we can reverse that or not. But we are doing things with vouchers and with charter schools and homeschools that are getting more and more children with a look at the objective part of our history. It's not enough to get the job done. I've hired people from Liberty, chief of staff from Liberty. I had a chief of staff from Hillsdale, too. I never saw a call come out of either one of those schools, and that's a term we use here in livestock country. When you call the litter, you throw one out that's not going to grow. But everyone out of those universities are excellent, and I've had a number of them, and, and, and they go on to do great things, too. How do we get more of those planted? I think we're gonna need to do it willfully, And we need a few deep-pocketed people that see what we're talking about here today that are willing to invest at least in the startup. And so what I would call for is this. Let's build a university dedicated to restoring Western civilization. Let's make it the center of the knowledge base for our culture, our civilization, the first world, make that the center of the knowledge base, and then plant satellites not just around this country, but especially around Europe as well, where they're losing their confidence, and build that knowledge base and exchange scholars, exchange uh, instructors, professors, and build that foundation of knowledge so that we have confidence again. And we have a defense mechanism. When they attack us for being whatever their list of adjectives are, uh, we need to come back and say, you're wrong. It was the Democrats that defended slavery. They're the ones that built the KKK. And it's the Democrats that are now embracing Karl Marx. You don't hardly ever hear that. We need to have a a whole network that will do that. If I had, let's say, if I had $5 million, and that's a big ask, I know, and I'm not asking it, actually, but if I had it, I'd have an executive director and a scheduler, and with that, I would have enough start that I could travel around, tie together the leaders of the conservative thought process in Europe, in the United States, in, in all of the first world. I could reach it all, and we could pull together an international organization to restore Western civilization for the world. But the main function has to be universities that teach Western civ again and are proud of it and know their objective is to push it out into the rest of the world through every media form that we have. And I think we've got a better chance now that Elon Musk has bought Twitter.
1: Right. And I know Ben Shapiro wasn't so nice to you, but I interviewed him 10 years ago and he said, instead of the, all these rich people spending, you know, $100 million on, on some congressional race in the middle of nowhere, take that $100 million and use it towards changing the culture, because long term, that's the only way we're going to win. I was thinking during COVID, also, like, you know, all these nurses and doctors were being fired, and I don't know what your opinion is on the vaccine, but all these nurses and doctors were being fired for not taking the vaccine. Where were the conservative billionaires saying, you know what, we're going to start a hospital tomorrow in Florida or North Dakota? and They were nowhere to be found. I mean, we need to have not just winning political races. We need to fight on the cultural front also, I think.
0: That's a terrific idea. When when you think about what that would be, a couple of billionaires that would say, if you've been pushed out of your profession, the highest of the skill levels that are there, let's pull you together and build a hospital. Mayo Clinic in Minnesota got established and look what it's grown into. You could do this with the talent that's there and not a lot of money to get it started. And it would cash flow in a very short period of time. That is a terrific idea Uh, for me on the vaccine. I just have to confess this way is that my wife has been death on the vaccine. She refuses under any circumstances. um, And uh, that's and she's been doing battle on that. For me, I had to hold meetings. And if I held meetings and somebody walked away from there and contracted COVID and somebody died, it would come back on me. So I did the first two vaccines. I'm fine. And I won't be doing any more. I guarantee you that. We both got COVID just about a year ago now. And uh, she was sick for three weeks and I was sick for a week. And I don't know if it proves anything, but we're now safer than we ever were. The antibodies are in both of us.
1: All right. That does it for us. If you'd like this episode, please give it a good rating. Share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our revamped website, 1vs450.com. That's 1vs450.com. On the website, first of all, you have a book sale, a Hanukkah book sale. If you buy two of my volumes of Movers and Shakers, you will get the third volume free. That's 181 interviews with many, many interesting and famous people, including Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Barrow Wine, A.B. Rottenberg, Mark Shapiro, Ben Shapiro, Yoram Hazoni, Katie Hopkins, Rabbi Nassim Slifkin, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Mrs. Libby Kahana, Stephen Rachab Meir, Baruch Marcel, Refershel Schechter, and many, many, many more. Number two, you also find the chess puzzles. We, I brought back the chess puzzles every week if you, if you scroll down. Also on the website, you are able to sign up for my newsletter. You get at least one or two emails a week with political commentary by yours truly, with links to my latest podcast episodes with Diveri by Barari Shamsen, Rafael Hirsch, and more. And finally, on the website, you have a link to my educational project called Educate Yourself Through Eliot. If you went to yeshiva or you went to another school in which you feel you did not get a proper education and you've always wanted to get more of an education, you always wanted to know more about the great books, the best that has ever been thought and said, as one 19th century English poet put it, you can spend the many, many, many dozens of hours reading all these books yourself, but perhaps you don't have all these hours. So if that is the case, let me help you. I'm reading these books. So far, I've put out episodes on The Republic by Plato, The Idiot by Dostoevsky, King Lear by Shakespeare. Future episodes will be on Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, Rousseau's *Emile*, Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, Israel Zangwill's The Melting Pot, and many, many more. We're doing this for a year, one book per week. Every week, you can educate yourself And know what every educated person should know about that particular book. So let me help you educate yourself through me. And that's only $10 per month or $100 for the year. And that, too, you can find on my website. All right, stay tuned for next week's episode, an interview with the opinion editor of Newsweek, Josh Hammer. And yes, believe it or not, he's a conservative, not a liberal. Till then, have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast episode.